What's my purpose in life? What am I here for? What's the meaning of life? How can I feel useful? Do I make a difference? Does my life matter? What's the point of it all? Perhaps you've asked questions like these. If you have, you're not alone. And if you have, you're also in the right place tonight. Because we're going to seek to answer them from the scriptures. G.I. Williamson, uh, in his study guide to the Westminster Shorter Catechism, it's a quote you'll find on the inside cover of your bulletin, says this. According to the Catechism, there is a reason for the existence of human beings, and this reason cannot be found in man himself. Well, that's a true statement, but it's not just according to the Catechism. It also is according to the Scriptures. So we're going to take a look outside of ourselves tonight to the Scriptures themselves, as we read earlier in our question and answer, to the only rule to direct us how we may glorify and enjoy Him. We're going to look to God, our Creator Himself, for the answer. And we're going to do this by starting, you guessed it, at the beginning. That is the beginning of Scripture. And when we do, when we start there, we'll find very quickly what we were created for. And that simply is this. And this is the answer to our catechism question. You were created to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. You were created to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. The book of Genesis, which details uh, the account of creation, in chapter 1, verse 26, says this. So after God has created for the first five days, Uh, And then midway through the sixth day, after he's created the beasts of the field, he says these words in verse 26, Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness. You were made in the image of God. You were made in his image, and we are meant to image him. That is, we are meant to reflect him. We are meant to imitate him. We are meant to show Him to ourselves, to each other, to the world. After all, imitation is the highest form of flattery. We were created in His image with true knowledge and righteousness and holiness. A question we'll come to later. And in that question, we're told we're created with dominion over the creatures. In chapter 1, verse 26 continues... And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. We were given dominion over the land. Does anybody here enjoy gardening? Raise your hands if you enjoy gardening. Okay, We have some green thumbs out there. Well, I trust you're better at it than I am. I trust you're more faithful at it than I am. 
But no matter how good your garden looks, it doesn't look like the one we're reading about right now in Genesis chapters 1 and 2. You see, Adam was told to tend that garden, and that garden had no weeds. And Adam told us to tend that garden, and that garden watered itself. So tending that garden meant guarding it and protecting it and enjoying its fruit. And oh my, did that garden produce some fruit. Some amazing fruit. So we're given dominion over the land. We're also given dominion over the animals. Does anybody like taxonomy? Naming things and studying that, and biology, and uh, or even, okay, that's a little lofty. How about just going to the zoo? Do you like going to the zoo? Recently, we were in Washington, D.C. We went to the National Zoo there. We were in the Pittsburgh Zoo this summer. Isn't it fun going to the zoo and just seeing animals that you've never seen before? Right? And, you know, if you're like me and your memory's a little bad and your kids are like, what's that one, Daddy? And, you know, well, that's the cheetah. I know that one's easy. And what's that one? Oh, that's a lion. But then you hit some and you have to kind of wander over by the signs, right? Uh, that's what this one is, right? And that's, that's where it lives. And that's what, so we don't know them all. Well, Adam, as he was first created, as these animals were first brought to him, got to give these animals names. And they came before him. He's like, whoa, look at that. I'm going to call it this. Look at that. I'm going to call it this. He's doing this work and he's doing it with God, for God's glory, and it's bringing him great joy, incredible joy. It's amazing work. And after all the animals come by, we read in our text, and I'm just kind of jumping around and paraphrasing through Genesis 1 and 2 here, right? No suitable helper was found for Adam. Nothing really looked like him, did it? Nothing just kind of looked like him. He sees all these texts and all their kinds, male and female, and they kind of all go together like hand and glove, and there he is all by himself. So God says, oh, I can take care of that, Adam. How about you just take a little nap? You just take a little nap. I don't think he said that. So Adam does. Falls into a deep sleep, and what happens? He wakes up, and there's something else next to him. And he says, whoa, man. Get it? Look at that. So he's tending this beautiful garden. No weeds, and it waters itself. And he gets to name all these animals. And now God says to him, be fruitful and multiply. And Adam says, well, I don't really, I don't know what that is, but it sounds like fun. We'll try that. So they try I mean, what a life. And God is there. He's there. He's there. Glorifying God and enjoying His presence. Move. Into Genesis chapter 3. We read these words. Genesis chapter 3, verse 8, found in your additional scriptures. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. It's as if it always happens. 
God is just going for a, a midday stroll in their very presence. But this day, something had changed. You see, the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. They're no longer naked and unashamed because sin has entered into the world. And sin is what keeps them from being able to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. And it's the same thing that keeps us from being able to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Sin affects our very ability to do this. Sin shatters that image of God in us. It's marred, it's broken. It seems beyond repair. And it's certainly beyond self-repair. Sin affects our relationship with God. It affects our relationship with each other. From our closest companions, perhaps our spouses, if we're married, to our friends and acquaintances. It affects our relationship with ourselves, the way we view ourselves, the way we think, the way we act. It affects our relationship with creation. And as we'll learn in another catechism question, it leaves all of mankind in a state of sin and misery. It's different. It's broken. Can't go back that way. Can't hit reverse. Can't get a do-over. Can't try again. Things have changed. So after that change, God will speak to the serpent. He'll speak to the woman. He'll speak to Adam. Some of those things that they enjoyed oh so much, working and tending that garden, aren't going to be like they were before. Giving birth to children, still one of the great joys in life. But oh, it's filled with much more tribulation now. The strongest words came to Satan himself. From God to the serpent. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, a promise that the seed of the woman would crush the seed of the serpent. That someone will come from the line of this woman to undo the damage that has been done. Because if that one never comes, the damage will never be undone. The consequences cannot be reversed. We're stuck. Life is the way it is. And until that one comes, there is no hope. Creation continues. Creation continues to glorify God the way it was intended. But even the creation itself is frustrated. It groans as we learn about in Romans chapter 8. Yes, the heavens declare the glory of God from Psalm 19. The sky shows forth His handiwork. They still fulfill their purpose, but oh, how hard is it for us now. Oh, how different things are. Oh, even when we try how difficult it is and how there's often so little joy in it, Yet that sun can go from one end of the sky to the other, declaring the glory of God. 
and doing it from Psalm 19, verse 5, with joy. We were designed for that too. We were designed for that work. We were designed for that joy. We chose otherwise. And until Christ comes to redeem us, we can't choose otherwise. But oh, Christ has come. Christ has come to redeem us. He has come to crush Satan. He has come to put all things under His feet. He has come to redeem a people back from the marketplace of sin. And so as we fast forward now to today's text, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31, we see the Apostle Paul writing to the church in Corinth, telling them, that God is again redeeming a people to glorify and enjoy Him. He's telling the Corinthians. Say this again if you've ever read the Bible. The Corinthians. God's word, that only rule to direct them to how many they glorify and enjoy Him, is coming to them through the Apostle Paul by the power of the Holy Spirit, Christ having redeemed them back so that they can learn again how to glorify and enjoy him. The Corinthians, with all the divisions among them, all the sexual immorality, all the lawsuits, all the struggling with how to interact with the pagan culture they're just being ripped out of. And it's to them that verse 31 comes, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. You see, the Corinthians had many, many questions. They didn't know how to do this. And so God was pleased to write to them, to speak to them, to teach them how they may glorify and enjoy. And they didn't know from the immediate context, chapters 8 through 10, if they could go into pagan temples anymore and eat meat there. So Paul wrote to them. Paul told them about how they could lay down things that they have rights to in chapter 9. Paul Paul wrote them about chapter 10 again, right? About uh, food sacrificed to idols in pagan temples. And now here he is in in, in their common marketplaces of the day. Because the pagan temples were were banquet halls and butcher shops and all kinds of things. And and the meat that was offered there, the animals that were killed, often ends up in the marketplace. And their question is, what, what, what do we do? need this stuff. They needed instruction and God is pleased to give it to them in His Word. And He comes and says, whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, so from the one small example to the macro example in everything, you Corinthians, do all to the glory of God. Do all to glorify Him. Do everything that you might enjoy Him, that you might know the power of His presence in your lives. Christ has broken the yoke of sin and the Holy Spirit has empowered you to live differently, to enjoy living a life that glorifies God. And that's what the Holy Spirit has been up to throughout all of redemptive history. Giving God's people songs to sing like we sang in Psalm 73 tonight. Words of great joy. Whom have I in heaven but you? 
And there's nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My heart and my flesh may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and the portion forever. For me, it is good to draw near to God. I have made the Lord my refuge that I may tell of all your works. What joy is in those words. Christ came to give us that joy. He spoke of it in John chapter 17, verse 13. But now I'm coming to you, and these things I speak in the world that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. The joy that was stolen from us, taken from us as we're left in sin and misery. Christ has come to restore and to redeem and teach us how to walk in God's ways again that we might glorify Him. And as we learn to glorify Him once again, and by doing that, as we learn to glorify Him in all that we do, we learn... We begin to learn to love each other well. Our text continues in verse 32, 33. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. You see, as we begin to learn to glorify God, that is, as we begin to understand that He is meant to be the center of our lives and not ourselves. That was the sin of our first parents and it's the sin that we all fall into. We are at the center of our own lives and we can't see clearly. We can't see God so long as we're at the center and we can't see to love one another. But like the old song goes, I can see clearly now the rain is gone but we're the rain. I can see clearly now that I'm out of the center of my life and God is at the center. He has been put in His rightful place. Things are in their right perspective now. And it's now that we can begin to love each other. It's now that we can begin to serve each other through our work, through our callings, through our vocation and daily life. These are great truths that came out of the Reformation, the same sources we get this catechism from. Martin Luther's known for so many things. He's known for the priesthood of all believers. But he's much less known for his teachings on vocation. His teaching that any Christian, in any calling, in any useful calling can glorify God with the work of His hands. You can glorify God not just as a pastor as those before Luther had so often said, but as a teacher. As a physical therapist. As a biologist. As a mental health professional. As a musician. As a student. As a counselor. You can glorify God in any useful calling. We can give Him glory and find joy in our work having been restored by Christ, having put God back in the center of our lives. Now we can begin to see the needs of others around us. Now we can begin to serve them with glad and generous hearts, knowing that we are serving the Lord as we do so. Colossians chapter 3, verses 23 and 24 put it this way. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. 
knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. God has given you, Christian, work to do, meaningful work, work that glorifies Him, work that is meant to bring you joy. He's given you work, and if you complete that work, you will have great joy. These are the great works that God has prepared in advance for you from Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10. Christ came, John chapter 17, verse 4, and He said, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. Having been redeemed in Christ, our Father gives us good and meaningful work to do. The work of our hands, whether you're employed or not, whether you're retired or not, whether you have an income or not, He's given you gifts and talents and abilities to be used to build up the body of Christ and to share the love of Christ with your neighbor. And that moves us forward. See, in learning to put God at the center of our lives and learning to glorify Him, we not only learn to love each other well, but we also show Christ to the world. Chapter 11, verse 1 reads thus, Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Paul is telling us here to imitate Him. As he imitates Christ. That is to image Paul as he images Christ. I think we can cut the middleman out there. Because in any way that Paul would not image Christ, he would challenge us. Don't follow me. Follow Christ. So we are to image Christ. Having been redeemed by God in the gospel, we are now called again to be image bearers. And image bearers with a point and a purpose to glorify God, to take great joy in our work, that others might come to be saved, that others might come to know the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, when we image Christ, to point out the obvious here, people see Christ. When we're restored and God's the center of our lives and and we're increasingly walking by faith and not by sight and, and we image Christ, the world sees Christ. Oh, and is He lovely. And when the world sees Him high, lifted up, glorified through the work of your hands, through the work that God is doing in you, through the joy you have in Him. It's time to sing Psalm 34. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. The Lord is giving people a taste of Himself through you. You are fulfilling your purpose. Paul is after this. He's trying to become all things to all people that many might be saved. He said these words also. In 1 Corinthians chapter 9, to the weak I become weak that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I may share with them in its blessings.
This is the same Paul who said, woe is me if I do not preach the gospel. And it is also the same Paul that said the gospel will offend other people. And so we can't and we won't and we shouldn't apologize for that, but we have no need to offend the Jew. We have no need to offend the Greek. We have no need to offend the church or to hurt the church or to show offense to the church of God. We can try and please others in all that we do by bringing glory to God. By putting Him on display for the world to see that some might come to know the saving knowledge of our Lord, Jesus Christ. And as we do that, we will see God's glory more and more in our lives. And the joy in our lives will grow as well. And they're growing together. And they're getting closer. And they're getting closer and closer and closer. And one day, they are going to fully and finally meet forever. God's glory and our joy will fully and finally reunite when Christ returns in glory. This is the picture we see in the book of Revelation, Revelation 4, 11. We see people uh, praising the Lord. Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will they existed and were created. Glory going to God and God alone. Revelation chapter 7, verses 15 through 17, also in your additional scriptures. Therefore they are before the throne of God and serve Him day and night in His temple. And He who sits on the throne will shelter them with His presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the Lamb is in the midst of the throne. The Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and He will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. God's glory and our joy will one day fully meet when Christ returns. In light of that, what is left for us to do? What's left for us to do, dear Christian, but to bring glory to the only God who is worthy of all glory and honor and praise here and now, to the Lord Jesus Christ. To learn to take joy in the work that He has given us hard at times, though it may be frustrating at times, though it still is, to enjoy Him in all that we do, to be glad as we serve Him. Have you ever seen the movie Chariots of Fire? Have you seen that movie? Have you read the story of Eric Liddell? What did he say? He was a runner. He was a better missionary than he was a runner, but oh, can he run? And when he said, when I run, I feel God's pleasure. We were made to run for God's glory. Hebrews chapter 12 puts it this way. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. 
Oh, it is a, a joy unspeakable await us. That's where we're going. That's the glory that awaits. And we taste that here and now. Can we taste it more together? Can we pursue the glory of the Lord together in the joy that comes with it in all that each of us do? Each and every day. This is our purpose. This is what we were made for. This is what we are being restored to. This is what Christ has come for. And this is one day all that we will ever know. The rest will be just a distant memory. Can we run together for the joy set before us? Let's pray.